it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, Pat Fallon's going to be here shortly, the congressman from Texas. And we're going to have Robert Irvine, the legendary chef. Uh, you know, he's a great talk show host. He's got a brand new book out called Overcoming Impossible. Uh, and we have uh, a lot going on today. For example, the vice president, the former vice president, will deliver remarks on defending parents' rights. You know he's getting set a couple hours. You know he's getting set to run for president. And Kansas City Chiefs are celebrating Super Bowl 57, their big win. They got a big parade. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. Jim was trying to negotiate a $140 million settlement between this U.S. company and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He boasts about how he only got the job doing this negotiation because he was the then vice president's brother. Explain this. James Biden, ally Hunter, is trading on the family name with his bro as VP. He made millions. We have the documents, and now will Republicans make the effective case? Number two. Uh, Governor, if you were to live in the area, would you feel comfortable moving back into your home? Look, look I, I think that I would be drinking the bottled water, um, and I would be continuing to uh, find out what the tests were showing as far as the air. Really? Well, we found out the test. You said the water and air were fine. Now you take drinking bottled water. Tell the truth and show some caution. That's my message to local and national politicians as the so-called experts when it comes to the toxic chemical spill in Palestine, Ohio. The train derailment from two weeks ago, followed by a controlled explosion. Not good for the people in the area. Number one. We learned nothing in these briefings that I didn't already know as a member of the Intelligence or Armed Services Committee. That's why I think it's so important that Joe Biden personally and directly address the American people. Yeah, that would be good leadership, fighting it out. China gets combative and the Biden administration on the balloon. They thrust on us and make laughable allegations while no one knows its origin or makeup or if the other objects were shot out of the sky, what they actually were, because we have not recovered any of the wreckage. Top secret briefings only add to the anger and confusion that you just heard. So with me right now to talk about leadership is the, the man, the author of a brand new book out to the, out yesterday, Overcoming Impossible, Learn to Lead, Build a Team, and Catapult Your Business to Success. Robert, welcome. Thank you very much. Hey, this how, is awesome. I didn't even know you were right. You're, you're everywhere, dude. Right. Well, you know, I've the, when Tony Snow went to the White House, do you remember when he became yep, press yep, secretary? Yep. So I was his one of his fill-ins, and I ended up taking over his show. So it's been fun. I mean, radio, you know radio is great. And, and you're better than him. Don't tell him I said that. Tony Snow? Yeah, no, that's, that. there's no way. <laughs> so, so Robert, in particular, you know, people see you on a regular basis talk about leadership, and you now write about it in your book, but you, you, you have a humility about it because you, you learn from your mistakes. How important is it generally to show up? I mean, if there's a problem, show up, take the fire, and listen. We don't see that with one catastrophe after another. You've got to stand up. You've got to own the mistakes, even if they're not yours. And you've got to show the country 
that you care. And uh, that's leadership, right? I talk about empathetic leadership in the book, about listening. Well, you got to listen. We have a country that's divided right now. No kidding. On, on a lot of things. Everything. Look, we've got Iraq, we've got Syria, we've got, you know, all the things that have happened. And now China and Iran. And, you know, I, I listened to a great conversation uh, uh, with Mark Esper, you know, uh, talking about, you know. We Former were, Secretary we, of Defense. Yes. And this, we, by the way, this is Robert Irvine. Uh, I great, always said Robert. Great, great friend of mine who, uh, great, great. West Point grad. Defense. But, but, but we've got to own these things. We've got to tell the people what's going on. And there's nothing wrong with I don't know. Yeah, Exactly. Right, but but we're afraid to say that. That's an ego thing, right? And I talk about that in the book. Let the ego go and say, "Look, hey, I don't know, but I'm going to find out, and we're going to do everything possible to find out." And I'll, and I'll give you an example. The Secretary of Transportation was a mayor, Oxford grad, just like our former HUD secretary was a brain surgeon. I have no problem with that. If you go in there, you put the gexes in other guys. Right. But leadership and uh, accountability, being a great citizen, service, you can learn it. I mean, you're an Oxford grad who served in the military. You can learn it. But you have to try. And you have to show up. Hey, I'm not a chemical expert. What, where is my chemical expert? What's going on? You look them in the eye and you get a sense and who's lying to you, who's nervous about it, who's not telling the truth. But you just said something there. Accountability, right? We've got to hold people accountable for, for their actions. Every action has a consequence. And if you don't know... And I say this all the time. I hire A people above me because I don't know the answers to liquor and this and this. you got to tell me what to do because I have no idea. But I'm okay with that. And a lot of people are not okay with that. You know, we hire, you know, I'm an A personality. I want a double A. We hire B people. And I talk about this in the book. We hire B people because we don't want to listen to them. It's my way and, and I don't want to listen to you. So don't talk to me. So one thing about leadership, and you talk about this, be compassionate. Show you care about the person, and they will, they will perform for you. And we see that uh, with great coaches, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, how are you going in your life? You going through a divorce? I understand things are going a little tough. You know, you got cut from such and such. So when you show you care, then that person will be invested in you. But that's the empathetic leadership. I know, look, we have just under 5,000 employees across our 11 companies, right? I need to know that, that Johnny is disabled and he needs this. And, I, and because that's, that's my job to understand that because now um, I'm getting a better uh, end result from you. Right. You know, some people like money. Some people might time off. Some people like a pat on the back. We're all different. Right. So if you understand your your workforce and you understand what they need, the company's always successful, regardless of how much money you make, because it takes time to build a brand. So if you think of a, a mom and pop restaurant at three hundred thousand, then you look at, you know, a, a three hundred million dollar company, the the problems are the same and they're scalable. And I talk about that in a pancake recipe, funnily enough, in the book about you can't just keep doubling and doubling and hoping that it's going to work out at the end. Right. It doesn't work like that. And, and you know, sometimes you have to admit this is not going to work. The, the, it's not the right location. It, the, the rent is too high. I cannot hire here. We don't have uh, the uh, – uh, there isn't the, enough people earning to be able to afford a restaurant like this. And I think, look, the restaurant business, the, the, the military business is changing. You know, we talk about this all the time. 
people are not joining the military because the pay is not consumer, the the service is not as good, whatever the reason, right? And when when I can go and do cyber intelligence outside and make three times as much, live in a house that's not moldy and get great food, right? So it's the same with the hospitality business. Nobody's coming into it because, well, I'm paying you $15 an hour. In fact, in Vegas, I pay $27 an hour for a guy that can't cook. But at least he's there and I can teach him. You know, and I think I think that's the problem with our workforce right now. We're trying to figure out, you know, do we go to work? Do we work for ourselves? Do we work from home? Or, or you know, this this city itself is suffering because people are not working. They're not coming to work. Not they don't ride work. the trains. They don't go to the deli for lunch. Yeah. So they don't go out to eat afterwards. They don't go to the gyms. So it just ripples down. Yeah. But even we would not – prior to 2019, we wouldn't have had this conversation. You go, yeah. well, Brian, of course people are going to work. Yeah. You know, that whole sense of telecommuting doesn't really work for most industries. But your industry in particular, and talking to John Tafford too, there's very few industries got hurt as hard as the restaurant business. The restaurant business was decimated across the world, not just – you know – during COVID, I got sick the first couple of days of COVID with food poisoning, doing a show. It wasn't the show I was fixing or the restaurant. It was at a golf course. I went to the hospital for two days, came out, pandemic across the world. And literally for three months, sat at home. I'm like, oh, my God. It's you sat me. at home. I sat at home for three months. It was going to kill me. My Probably wife, worked out like crazy. My wife was outside and I was inside. I actually got COVID on the 4th of July, went in the hospital for six days. Trouble breathing? I couldn't breathe. Yeah, it was awful. Um, There was no, there was no vaccines. There's no. It was, you know, hey, suck it up, buttercup, vitamin D and vitamin C, whatever, supplemental air. I came out and I said to Courtney White, who was the president of Food Network, I'm getting three to four thousand emails a week in hospital. We need to do something. So we got on buses. It was tour buses, six people on a bus. We did 66 episodes of Saving Restaurants, who, by the way, are still in business now. Nobody else was on, on, on the road. Nobody's doing anything. And yet we see more with inflation and, and everything else now. Lifelong restaurants, like just going out of business because you can't afford to run. Right. Because everything's more expensive too, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Labor, food, and you can't pass that on to the to the the consumer because they don't have any money either. Right. You know, it's interesting too, and you probably do the math better than me. I know you would. They say now with inflation and and prices that it's almost the same cooking at home and going out to eat. Is that no? I'm gonna I'm gonna correct you if you don't mind me. Yeah. It's cheaper to eat out now. Cheaper than it is to it's eat even in. Cheaper. Okay. So that, I mean, for me, I never ate out as a kid, maybe twice. So I'm overcompensating now. <laughs> so I love, I love eating out. Uh, so I was, I was privileged to, I, I loved hearing that. But why is it? Why does the math add up that it's cheaper to go out? Because you buy it in bulk? Because, because we're buying, you know, instead of, instead of 10 eggs, we're buying 140 eggs. Although a case of eggs used to be $40, it's now a buck twenty for a case of eggs in a restaurant, right? So it's tripled. The meat is tripled. So we're trying to find creative ways of pivoting with inexpensive meat. You know, you steakhouse, you've got to have prime, right? You've got to go and, and, and do these things. But with, with mom-and-pop restaurants that can create the menu, reduce the menu from 28, 38 items to 18 and rotate that being more or, or less expensive, you know, um, brazing product that's tough 
to make it soft. You know, short rib used to be uh, the most inexpensive meat, like lobster. Lobster used to be prison food. Good luck trying to get lobster in prison now. But so, so we're trying to adapt and pivot that food based on what we can spend that week. So they say right now, uh, food prices are expected to rise another seven percent in twenty twenty three. So that prices goes up everywhere, and then if you have to also have to get labor costs up because people are in competition for less people. Robert Irvine is going to continue and go over not just food, but just some principles that will help you become a better leader and a better worker. Uh, Back in a moment. And by the way, the name of Robert Irvine's book is called Overcoming Impossible. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. So Robert Irvine's here. You know him, host of the Food Network. You also know him all over the channels. Got a great reality show. Takes on John Taffer and another one as they look to revive restaurants and see who does better. His book is out uh, this week. It's called Overcoming Impossible. Uh, Learn to lead, build a team, and catapult your business to success. So what are some of the leadership things that you've learned along the way? You said you learned a lot by making mistakes. Number one, I think for me was the ego, right? I when I got into business, I, I worked for Donald Trump for four years. I was his executive chef in Atlantic City, and he said to me, "quote unquote, do whatever you need to do uh, to make money." He was making seven hundred eighty-four million dollars a year in, in the casino and fifteen million on food and beverage. And I said, "Okay, but I need to do this, this, and this." He said, "Do it." Uh, our first year, we went from 15 million to 83 million, and I was like the golden child. Um, I had a great life there. He, he was really good to me. Um, and I think changing, not trusting, is 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 one of the things I is one of the pillars in the book. And I say, look, I didn't believe in the purchases. I didn't believe in the loading dock. I didn't believe in because we would have trucks of of Alaskan king crab legs pull up. The cab would leave, and ten minutes later, another cab would pick it up and disappear. And there was no footage. You know, I, I mean, it was ridiculous. So for me, I learned to hold people accountable, double check, triple check, put systems in place that those trucks couldn't take out without somebody being there. And, and so I think it's putting systems in place, understanding the people, and hiring the people. That was the biggest thing for me because I thought I knew it all, and I don't. Um, and I understand that now, but it took me 10 years to figure that out. Right. <laughs> you know, hire people that are smarter than you. And and we have, you know, the protein bars, the liquor, all those things that we do now in our foundation uh, that do really well. In eight years, I mean, Fit Crunch is a $200 million company because I hire people better than me. Right. And I think they're the biggest lessons that you 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 learn is, hey, look, you may be good at one or two things, but if you don't understand it, it's okay, just like you said a second, it's okay to say I don't get it and bring in people that do get it. Right. That can explain it and you can learn it. Uh, I remember Captain Kirk had Spock who was smarter than him. But <laughs> you know who the captain was, right? So that you need you need experts around you. So what kind of uh, boss was Donald Trump? It was great for you? It was great for me. I got to tell you, look, I, I, look, I don't – I, I went to Atlantic City. They all say the same thing. I had a great thing because he allowed me to do – 
uh, what I do and report to him and do the things that, that I needed to do to make him money um, and change things. And he allowed me to change the purchasing. He changed all those things. It was a good thing for me. Um, he never had anything to do. I would go up. He would come in. I'd say, this is where we are. This is, you know, I remember he wanted to change the meat um, in the steakhouses and whatnot. And I said, well, if you put prime in every restaurant, it's going to cost you another $6 million. And I said, how about I just do this, season the meats across the board, and you try it, and you pick it, and you tell me what you want. He picked choice. <laughs> he did. Okay. <laughs> so, so you know, you know what you know, and you, know, you don't know what you don't know, right? Uh, and he had a great team around, and Nick Ribbis was there, and all these other uh, uh, great folks. So, for me, my experience um, mm-hmm. of working for him at Taj Mahal was really good. You had a you have a Pentagon contract, yes. So, and you were able to see a lot of the men and women serve on a regular basis. And you know, it, you make money, but still, you love being a part of this. I love look the military to me, and I'm a. Look, I come from England. I became a citizen twelve, fourteen years ago. I pay my taxes. I vote. And I love the military. I travel 150 days a year to be around them and make sure they know that we care, we cook, we work out, we do the USO tours. I, I have a, a program in my foundation, the Robert Irvine Foundation, called Breaking Bread for Heroes at every base, at a base every week, two or three times a week, no matter where it is. We feed anywhere from 600 to 1,000 airmen or Marines or whatever. I just think that that we have the best military in the world and we have to give them the best and let them know that the best uh, training and food and, and their families behind them. So, yeah, I mean, it's like I asked Mike Milley when he was the chief of the army, could I, could I re-enlist at 50? And he's like, no, you're too old. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you'd be a great soldier. I mean, man, your fitness. Real quick, you, you watched the Ukrainians training with the Americans on the HIMARS. Yeah, it was unbelievable. We were in Germany uh, at what they call the box. And it's interesting because it's where we take original Russian tanks, we fit them uh, with a new turret, and it's where we play electronic tag with tanks. Uh, and, and Justin and my team, we got to play out there, and, and these in black, everything's in black, they wear black overalls. And uh, it was unbelievable to watch this, this tank movements. And if you've never been in a tank, they're rough as hell. But it's amazing to play this game. Um, And I watched the Ukrainians teach the Americans how to fix trucks. So resourceful. Yeah, amazing. Overcoming Impossible. Go pick out this book. You'll become a better leader, a better parent right away. Robert Irvine, thanks so much. Appreciate you. Back in a moment. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Possible leading explanation here that, uh, that we're beginning to develop uh, in concert with uh, the intelligence community and with civilian aviation authorities is that uh, these very well could be uh, balloons uh, of a completely benign nature, uh, perhaps uh, commercial uh, or scientific research uh, sort of a, fo- a focus there. Uh, again, we don't know for sure, Katie, because we haven't recovered that debris. So you're talking about one definitely maneuverable Chinese sophisticated electronic balloon from China. But the other three could be from a car sale uh, of a Toyota dealership. We're not sure. 
that's what I think Admiral Kirby is getting us ready for those facts as we try to recover these balloons, one from Alaska, one from the Yukon in Canada, and one from Lake Huron. Congressman Pat Fallon joins us now. He's on the House Armed Services Committee of Texas uh, and was an officer in the United States Air Force. Congressman, always great to have you on. Can you read between the lines for me? What could you tell us about what happened to the other th- What are the other three objects? Well, Brian, that's the thing that we were trying to ask. And what I, again, with this administration, there's always a delay and there's not a lot of good communication at all. And, and largely, unfortunately, members of Congress are ignored. And then when they came out and the Secretary of Defense, Austin, said that he has more questions than answers, I'm thinking, you're the one supposed to have the answers, man. But, you know, uh, Brian, the, the February 4th uh, Chinese spy balloon, the excuse that they gave for not shooting it down until it hit the Atlantic was so ridiculous to say that, well, we didn't want anybody to be you know, Of course you don't. But when you're in, when it's over Montana with the uh, population density of seven per square mile, and you take out the top seven towns in Montana, that's 400,000 people. You don't shoot it down over one of those towns, obviously. You Now you're down two and a half people per square mile. It's like Alaska. It's the perfect place to shoot it down. It made no sense. The Senator Dane said shoot it down. The governor said shoot it down. Uh, Congressman Zinke said shoot it down. Don't you think they like their voters? Yeah, they love their voters because that's the safest place to put it. There's nobody in those rural areas of Montana. There's literally, Brian, one or two people per square mile. That's where, and then there's no intelligence gathered at all. And we send a message to China that they don't play like this. So they floated a balloon across, I think, something like 14 of our states. What are they going to think about Taiwan? I mean, we're not projecting strength. We're projecting weakness. I don't think there's any doubt about it. So the, so China's answer is not, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. It is to increase belligerence and accuse us of sending 10 balloons this year alone or last year uh, across their border. Listen to John Kirby's response. Cut to. I assume the United States does spy on China. Do we send balloons? We do not deploy surveillance balloons over China. And do we spy over China? We do not deploy surveillance balloons over China, George. Of course we spy. Everybody spies over everybody. Everybody knows that. (laughs) But but, uh, in terms of them coming back and saying what they're saying, uh, they actually were sarcastic, too, and talked about flexing muscle. Here's a, it says, uh, U.S. needs to be careful not to pull its muscle while flexing it so hard. We have, some, uh, we have said time and time again the U.S. clearly overreacted by using force on an unmanned Chinese civilian airship. Quite a few media outlets have compared the U.S. downing of this flying object to shooting mosquitoes with uh, flak guns and called it odd and costly political behavior art. U.S. needs to be careful not to pull its muscle while flexing so hard. How do you interpret that? I interpret the fact that Joe Biden said in the State of the Union, Brian, that he acts boldly when it comes to China. That is oddly a bold, to use his term, bold-faced lie. He met with Xi, and he's never brought up Xi's aggressive nature toward Taiwan. He's never even talked to him about fentanyl which most of the fentanyl that ends up in the United States is produced in China and then ferried through Mexico. We lost 107,000 Americans to opioid overdoses, 80,000 of those, Brian, were fentanyl. And he doesn't even talk to Xi about it? He's not, again, that's weak. That's flaccid. That's why China is probing. Well, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is you read the People's Daily, which is the Chinese government newspaper, and they say, they write about how the Americans are hopelessly addicted to drugs. No, we're addicted because you keep flooding our borders with them. 
And that's their goal. I mean, between the fentanyl, between the buying up farmland, between them giving hundreds of billions of dollars to our colleges, to buying up charter schools and boarding schools, what more evidence do you see that they're trying to do a slow-moving invasion? No, that's exactly what it is. This is asymmetrical warfare. If you really think about it, World War II, we lost 297 Americans every day. It was awful for almost four years. Well, last year alone, we lost 293 to opioid overdoses. That is comparable. And the farmland thing and other land in the United States, okay, quid pro quo. Can we, can, can Brian, can you, can, can, Brian, can you go to China and buy land? No. No, no American can. You have to uh, lease it, and there's 51% has to be owned by uh, a Chinese national. So why are we letting them do that? Do, what, do this, do, buy land here. I have a, a legislation that we filed that prevents them from uh, any Chinese national from buying land in the United States. And we should do that. We should do, hey, this is the same standard that you apply to us. We're just simply going to apply it to you. Well, your governor of Texas, said, Abbott, says you, that you are not go, going to be sell any land to China. Yes, and I fully agree with that. And we want to do that at federal level, to nationally. But no, you cannot. We are going to, you know, President Trump, let's be honest, was the only chief executive to ever stand up to China. And say, no more. You're not going to roll over us like you have for decades. We thought, well, some people thought that an engaged China in, in the world economy and world affairs was going to be a good thing. It's, it hasn't been. They have nefarious intent. Now they're showing their true cards, and we have to be very wary. Right. There should be a massive pullout and decoupling whenever, wherever it's possible. And these, uh, uh, and these companies have to think more red, white, and blue than green. And just stop uh, giving in. And these University of Pennsylvania and the Harvard's got to say, we don't need your billions. We we ha- we cannot uh, afford to be influenced by another government. So, uh, and I know MIT who refused to 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 uh, hear from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo while he was in office because it would have upset China, who gives millions of dollars or billions to MIT. This is insane. But let's talk about the border if we can. The president of the United States visited. We had the mayor of New York City visit. Uh, right now, the president's bragging that we have less breaches of the border because of the new parole policy where people apply from the places they live. If you're from Haiti, Venezuela and others, how is that working? Well, all he's doing is just shifting. We have the same amount of people coming across. He's just for he's just letting about 100,000 in saying, yo, you're OK. If you're from Nicaragua, Cuba, um, Haiti, and Venezuela, you can just come in uh, up to like 100,000 a month or something. Let's be really honest. And he gave him, he, he lied about 15, 20 times, bull-faced lies during the State of the Union, one of them which was the border getting better. It's never been worse. We've never had a month before Joe Biden in our history where we had over 200,000 illegal border crossers. We've had 10 months in a row. So what they're going to do now is play a shell game, Brian, and they're going to say, oh, look at the illegal crossings. I know in December it was the worst month ever, 251,000. But January, this is my prediction, oh, it's going to be only 150,000. See, it went down 100,000. No, it didn't. They just told those 100,000 to go through a point of entry. And they paroled them right away. It's the same situation. We don't know who these people are. They don't have a skill set, unfortunately, many of them, to succeed. We have 4 million people waiting to come to the country legally, and we're allowing all these people to cut the line. They're not econ- they're economic migrants. They're not political asylum seekers. But the NGOs that the Biden administration funds tells them, hey, play this little game, and you'll get into the country. And all that's going to do is create more folks coming, and we don't have the capacity to, uh, to manage it right now. And I think it's worse. I think— they're flying them in. They fly them in for the country they're at. 
So we don't even have a track of it. You know, they're landing at 2 in the morning on private flights, and Secret Service is on the ground. I see it in Westchester, New York. Uh, I hear about it in Long Island. You know, you heard about it in Pennsylvania. So they're going to be able to fly people in and maybe even be more discreet. They don't even tell the governors. Uh, lastly, recruiting in the military. What are you guys doing as a member of the Armed Services Committee to work with the Pentagon to try to up recruits? So what we talk about, and this is something that really shocked me as a member of Congress, and is that, you know, sitting on the Armed Services Committee, I asked, because I had my own contact telling me they're not meeting the recruiting goals. So I talked to the brass of the military, and I said that, I asked about it last year, and they said, no, we're, we're fine, we're fine. And then they had to, because they thought they were going to, you know, they were kind of betting on the comp, thinking they could meet their goals in the last four months. They didn't. And so we were uh, short the Army, about 20,000 troops. 20,000 in one year. And then they kicked 8,400 of them out for not taking an experimental vaccine, which made no sense. It was completely illogical. So what we're trying to do is when we're developing the NDAA this year, the National Defense Authorization Act, is use incentives, use financial incentives to get people in. Now, this is an across-the-board problem in in our economy right now. If you talk to anyone, labor is in a, a severe shortage, and they're looking for it. But we need to incentivize folks. And when you've got a major political party, Telling young kids that America is not worthy and we're not a, a net force of good in the world, it's going to be hard to recruit. So this is on the Democrats as well. Could you also say that maybe we, we up the benefits, too, and get a new ad campaign going and get into high schools? Yeah, Brian, the, the Marines never have a problem. The Marines are always the ones that have the recruiting goal. They have excellent um, outreach. They have excellent commercials, ex- excellent advertising. And we do need to up the benefits. Um, I think from educational benefits, make them juicier and give them bonuses. I mean, we've done this in the past where when the economy is very strong and it's hard to attract people in the military, sometimes we give bonuses in particular career fields up to 50,000, uh, 75,000, 100,000 once they complete basic training and then they yeah. follow on what we call technical training. So we should absolutely do that because I do not want to go to a draft ever. I want to con- maintain a, a volunteer force and it's a very dangerous world out there. No kidding. Uh, Congressman uh, Pat Fallon, glad you're out there and um, keep fighting. He's a member of the House Armed Services Committee, uh, former U.S. uh, Air Force officer, and right now just trying to find out what is in our skies that we're shooting down. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much. Brian, thank you. You're a great American. God bless you. All right. uh, Go get him. When we come back, I'll take your calls. 1-866-408-7669. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. We learned from the New York Times this weekend that Trump's new nickname for Ron DeSantis is Meatball Ron. Meatball Ron. Yeah, uh, they will never take a. They never let Donald Trump get very far, at Jimmy, with Jimmy Kimmel, right? Yeah, that was a Kimmel intro to then Colbert singing, but I felt like it was actually the best thing Colbert's done in a while because it wasn't just like ripping, right? You know, but it is. It's it, way to oh, put it down is. DeSantis and Trump at the same time. Agreed, but it was a little song that wasn't really obnoxious, just something different. But he calls, uh, yeah, desanctimonious meatball. But by the way, the biggest problem with Ron DeSantis is he wears loose suits. The guy's a rock. I mean, and you know who said that? Who? Donald Trump. 
So then he's the he, one who told me that uh, was the first one to say to me, he goes, this guy is solid. I said, oh, OK. And then when I went and did that day with him, he's solid. And you might have something else coming up with him. So are you going to ask him maybe to like not wear a shirt to show us how solid he is? Hmm. I, that's one approach. I was also t- I was also thinking about just bumping into him, you know, there and getting go. a sense of, uh, of. But then you'd need to report on how solid he is. How right. do his pecs feel? Right. I don't <laughs> think uh, that's the reporter job. I think I'm there to tell a story, not feel a man. Well, but would it be reporting on if he's truly like pudgy or is he solid? Right? Is he super healthy or is he a little, you know, unhealthy? What's amazing is he's an elite athlete. He's a captain of uh, the Yale baseball team where a guy named George Bush, H.W. Bush, was also captain. So he got a full ride to an Ivy League school. Um, well, I guess I just got an update from Fox Sports. Let me see what it was. Maybe they're tweeting the picture of you, you know, trying to get in on uh, the Kelsey, Mama Kelsey. And, uh, yeah, there's a picture Kelsey's of me meeting. there uh, when, Jay, uh, when Travis Kelsey was hugging his mom. And I was waiting patiently for the interview. I don't know if I'd say that. <laughs> the video I saw, you were trying to get in there. I mean, the picture shows that you're waiting patiently, but then after that picture, you're That's like, a, like a good reporter. Well, you're trying to get the mic in there to hear what they're saying. And exactly. if you got an interview, that would just be a bonus. Right. So we were able to get, uh, we were able to get into the game uh, right on the field. Uh, let's go to uh, Patrick. Hey, Patrick, you're on, you're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Oh, holy crap. Uh, how you doing? Uh, super excited to be on the show. I understand. Try to put it into words. What's on your mind? Okay, well, uh, I heard the Pete Buttigieg uh, comments yesterday, and uh, I actually work for a company on the uh, Warner Robins Air Force Base, a company called River to Tap, and um, the owner of the company, she's uh, a minority woman, um, great lady, hires many of people um, of different backgrounds. Um, right here at the base here, um, we have uh, just about every kind of person here. All right. Uh, Thanks a lot for the call, Patrick. Um, we just got to get to the point. Appreciate you, you joining me. one 866 But he is bringing up something I wanted to bring up this hour. In Ohio, what's going on now with this contamination and the derailment and the, uh, and the vinyl chloride that is in the area where they said everything's fine, the air test positive, but then the governor comes out and says, well, uh, I'm gonna, I would drink bottled water. And to me, that's terrible leadership. Wait a second. Either it's okay to drink, boil water, have a shower. You tell everyone they're fine. And then when asked, would you do it? He goes, well, I'd probably bring bottled water. Well, what else would you do? I mean, am I watering my lawn with the water that's coming out of the hose? If I have a well, which evidently a lot of people in Palestine, Ohio, have wells, how deep is this stuff possibly in the ground? Because you had a detonated slow burn, a burn, because you didn't want it to explode once it derailed. So the governor made a tough decision to explode it himself, and you see the big plume. Well, what's the ramifications of that? Because every time we go out to somebody in the area, they say they smell the gas still. So listen to Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff. He has no problem with it. Cut nine. We're strongly recommending those who have not yet had their water source checked to use bottled water. And bottled water is being made available again. Um, Same phone number that you can call if you need access to that. Uh, This is going to be particularly important if you are pregnant, if you are breastfeeding, or if you are preparing formula for an infant. So we would encourage you um, 
to avail yourself of that of that water. And despite all the people complaining and saying, I'm really worried about it. I have uh, my I've, I have a scratchy throat. I got blotches on my face. I'm watching my dog throw up and I'm watching fish die. This is what Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff went on to say. Cut 10. We've got very good data as it relates to the air quality. And I think people can feel very confident in that fact, coupled with the fact that there continues to be air monitoring. So that's that's very good. Uh, we, we have no indication that the municipal water supply uh, uh, is not safe. However, we do have testing that is pending. And I think it's a relatively easy thing to do to use bottled water for a short window of time. Right. Okay. Where am I showering? Because you have open pores. Should I be showering underwater that could be contaminated? Where do I go? And the way I understand, there's a blue-collar area with a lot of, not a lot of uh, four seasons around. So you're going to have to go to a different town, a different city to get out. There, these people got to be massively compensated. And also, I had no idea that you could travel with this hazardous waste this great distances. I mean, should, are there overall inspections on some of these? Because evidently, the axle just busted. So 10 of those cars are filled with this, this noxious gas. And they had no idea. At least the governor said he didn't. From the Fox News radio studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming here from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. This hour, we're going to be joined by... Lance Morrow, a journalist and author of several books, including The Noise of Typewriters Remembering Journalism. That would be nice. And Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor, editor-at-large uh, for The Spectator and host of the Ben Dominich podcast. And we know the vice president of the United States, the former vice president, who's going to be running for president, I think it's all but certain. Uh, he's going to be busy today. He's going to be delivering remarks on defending parents' rights. Kansas City Chiefs is celebrating their Super Bowl 57 win. they got a huge parade and tomorrow's going to be cold. Today's going to be nice for the people of Kansas City. And President Biden will deliver remarks on the progress we are making building an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. That's what he says. A lot of people, including the stock market, are concerned. Fed's going to raise rates because inflation is uh, is not going anywhere. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Jim was trying to negotiate a $140 million settlement between this U.S. company and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He boasts about how he only got the job doing this negotiation because he was the then vice president's brother. Josh Boswell on Hannity last night explained this. James Biden, now like Hunter, trading on the family name in the past when his vice when his brother was vice president. We have the documents. Republicans have to make the case. Number two. Uh, Governor. If you were to live in the area, would you feel comfortable moving back into your home? Look, look, I, I think that I would be drinking the bottled water, um, and I would be continuing to uh, find out what the tests were showing as far as the air. Governor Mike DeWine, tell the truth and show some caution. That's my message to local and national politicians and so-called experts when it comes to the toxic chemical spill in Palestine, Ohio. The train derailment followed by controlled explosion has led to many evacuations and a lot of questions. 
Number one. We learned nothing in these briefings that I didn't already know as a member of the Intelligence or Armed Services Committee. That's why I think it's so important that Joe Biden personally and directly address the American people. Would be nice fighting it out. China gets combative with the Biden administration on the balloon they thrust on us and make laughable allegations while no one knows its origin, as usual when it comes to them. Top secret briefings have revealed almost nothing but anger and confusion. Joining us now, a man who's never angry and confused, Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor. Ben, welcome. Uh, good to be with you, Brian. I may occasionally be angry, but I try not to be confused about that anger. Yeah, uh, you're clear about how angry you are. So, <laughs> exactly. So uh, let's let's begin in, in Ohio, if we can. It seemed it took a week for people to realize this is a real problem. And still our transportation secretary doesn't feel he should visit, but he can tweet about it. You know, it's really astounding how bad Mayor Pete has been at his job. I mean, really, let's take a step back. You know, this was a guy who was put forward to us, uh, you know, by the media as being, you know, this uh, a competent manager, someone who, you know, had skills beyond his years. Uh, and, you know, obviously the reason that he kind of stumbled and failed was that, if anything, he was viewed as too much of a suit, too much of a McKinsey style. Uh, you know, I can, I can, you know, upend things and remake them and, and have this sort of corporate consultant vibe to me. Uh, in in terms of his approach uh, at uh, the Department of Transportation, he has been nothing but an abject disaster for this administration in every different respect. And it's not just you know the challenges that as it relates to you know airline travel, as it relates to you know the various strikes and things that were happening while he was on paternity leave. By the way, you know he he only took four months more than me on paternity leave. Uh, Brian, <laughs> I just want to point that ah. out. Um, so um, <clears throat> you know the thing that I think is really astounding here is that you'd think, you know, if this guy has any kind of ambitions, he would be trying to right the ship. Absolutely. He would be leaning into something like this, saying, okay, wait, this is an opportunity for me to show that I'm actually really good at my job. I'm good. I'm, I'm empathetic. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to be in front of people. I'm going to be as uh, authentic and upfront as we can be about what's really going on here. Uh, and, you know, reach out to all of these Midwesterners who are, frankly, very concerned, uh, justifiably so, about the truth and what's been going on around them not being uh, fully made known to them in the way that they deserve. And that's something that just is astounding to me, again, because you'd see this, I think, you know, any politician would see this as a way to right the ship. You know, look, I may have had some botches along the way. It's not all my fault. You know, some of this stuff isn't on me, you know, even if I wasn't you know, uh, as as prepared for this job, perhaps as the media uh, let on, but th- uh, but this is a situation where, unfortunately, he's doing the opposite. Right? He's, yeah, you know, ignoring this, he's playing into. Well, this there's a lot to crap. there's a lot to showing up and be able to smell it and see it. You go to the diner and you talk to people. You go to the hardware store and you interact with people, and then you say to yourselves, "Is the fi- are fish really dying? Show me." Because listen, I mean, to this th- is this is as much as this is as, as the equivalent of you know a, a president or a, you know a major executive in a state uh, avoiding a trip to a national uh, you know a yeah. uh, a natural disaster zone or something like that. You know, if a hurricane comes through, you want to see the people in charge on the ground there, figuring out what's going on, hearing and talking to the people, uh, and making it clear that hey, we're in charge, we're going to fix this, we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that. Well, people here's are Congressman and Mike. Here's Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. Cut sixteen. Secretary of Treasury, uh, excuse me, Transportation, Buttigieg, uh, ought to be on this. He's been ignoring yeah. this. I think it shows he turns his back on middle America when they have uh, a, a crisis like this. But this is one where it shows that, you know, 
the people who are affected get very little information. This needs to be fixed. Uh, the Department of Transportation needs to have a greater awareness of the risk and of where these hazardous materials are and how they can affect communities. Yeah, and now they're going to have a town hall tonight to get some answers because people say we can still smell it, we can't get home, we don't have money to go to a Four Seasons. Who's going to reimburse us? No one blames them for the train derailment. I would like to get to the bottom of it. I, you know, yeah. I know so little about trains, but 50, 50 cars, got it. 10 are filled with this toxic uh, vinyl chloride. All right. Evidently, if they declared it hazardous, it would have been more insurance money. So they didn't. And now they go through. And are these old trains? Because the axle evidently just cracked. So are they old? Really? So, uh, so there needs to be an investigation there. I don't know anything about trains, but I'm willing to find out. This is the other big thing here, Brian. This cuts against so much of what Joe Biden has been leading with over the past several years in terms of uh, rebuilding American infrastructure. You know, the idea that uh, the problems like this are happening on his watch and on the watch of his transportation secretary cut against that narrative that, you know, we actually have good people in charge. And this is something I pointed out to you before, and I, I really stress, you know, this is not just this is not an ideological failure. There are plenty of ideological failures in this administration. There are incompetent people in jobs that they don't deserve because of their ideological position and their, you know, matrix on the on the woke agenda. Uh, but this is also just a failure of leadership, a failure of elites. America deserves a better class of leader. They deserve people who are actually capable in scenarios like this uh, to grab hold of it, to do whatever it takes to solve it, and to be authentic and upfront with the American citizens right. about what's going on and how they're going to get to the answers. Unfortunately, that's not what we get from this administration. No, we don't. Uh, and uh, lastly, Mike DeWine. Uh, was asked uh, about moving back home. What should we do? What about the control burn and the implosion that you took, that you detonated? Uh, and would he feel comfortable going back? Listen to his answer. Cut twelve. Uh, Governor, if you were to live in the area, would you feel comfortable moving back into your home? Look, look. I, I think that I would be drinking the bottled water, um, and I would be continuing to. Uh, um, find out what the tests were showing as far as the air. Um, I would be alert and and concerned. Okay, why don't you tell us, uh, Governor? Yeah. All right, you know, can you tell us <laughs> what the answer like that no is? That sounded like a no to me, Brian. That sounded like a no. I would yeah. not be comfortable. Right. So, yeah, but, but this guy, I mean, come on. You just got elected by 20 points. Just show some leadership. Push your just glasses back. Us. Just just, yeah. just come out and say it. And that's the thing that people want from their politicians, from their leaders in moments like this. They don't want anybody dancing around. They want people who will actually you know, level with them and be honest with them so they can make decisions for themselves. So Nikki Haley is officially in the race for 2024. 20, uh, uh, so she came out and she says it's a great country. We lose it. We have not had. Uh, the majority of the vote in this country uh, one time in the last, I don't know, five uh, five terms. So she came out and talked about how great this country was. Evidently, that ticked off Whoopi Goldberg. Cut 26. So, Nikki, <laughs> you know, since you have been asleep all this time and you just woke up, <laughs> you're just finding out that there are things about our country that are not perfect. And for us to pretend that it is and that nothing happened is ridiculous. So you're not saying anything new. And you of all people should know better because you used to actually have some sanity and knew right from wrong. Yes, and then you lost your mind and, and went in some new direction. So don't do that. Well, uh, I think that actually helps her. Uh, but oh, what are your thoughts? 
Of course it does, Brian. And look, you know, I don't think that she could ask for a better foil than this. Look, you know, you and I, I think, disagree a little bit because I'm I'm pretty down on Nikki Haley's uh, uh, possibilities. I think she kind of had a moment but then uh, kind of missed it. But one thing that I don't think you can argue at all is that she is unaware of uh, America's history when it comes to issues of uh, battles over uh, yeah. race, tensions within communities, and things that she had to navigate in South Carolina. Look, I grew up in South Carolina, in Charleston, and I'm well aware of all the controversies that she had to deal with over the course of her tenure there and deal with, I think, very well and candidly, you know, I think that she was someone who, you know, had a lot of uh, potential back then. You know, I think that today people want uh, someone who's a little more new to the fray, but we'll see how she performs when she gets out there on the trail. Someone like Whoopi going after her on this, though, just reveals Whoopi Goldberg's ignorance about who this person is. She just sees Republican after their name and just makes these ridiculous assumptions about who they are, what their experience is like, what they've been through, and particularly in navigating, you know, the, the South as someone who, you know, has, uh, you know, South Asian heritage as, as Nikki Healy does. You know, it's something that was a challenge for her in her own life. It's something that she's well aware of. Uh, and, you know, for Whoopi to just go out there and, and act as if, you know, she doesn't know anything about history. Look, you can't live in South Carolina, be in Charleston, or be in the state government there without knowing the history of that state, you know, without looking across the water and seeing Fort Sumter and know what went on there, to see the, the historical monuments there and understand uh, the different tensions that exist within those communities, she absolutely understands that. And for Whoopi to go after her, I think, only benefits her. We'll see how she responds to it in the coming days, but I certainly think it's something she's going to lean into. I, and plus, uh, you have in South Carolina, could be Senator Tim Scott uh, running too. So mm-hmm. out of Senator Tim Scott, Governor Hutchinson, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Mike Mike Pence, and now it looks like, uh, you know, by all indications, Governor DeSantis, and then Trump is in already. Uh, How do you rank them? Can you give me your top four? Well, you know, I think that, you know, obviously if Ron DeSantis is in, I think it's, you know, mostly between the Florida men. I think Tim Scott is a really interesting candidate who could royal things. If if I actually had to pick a dark horse who might – uh, overperform in the early days. I think Mike Pompeo could do a lot better than people necessarily think. He's gotten uh, a lot more celebrity appeal on the on the trail. His book's doing well. Uh, he's a strong foreign policy voice, and people forget he's got the kind of Midwestern uh, capability, the glad hand, which I think would serve him well in a state like New Hampshire and a state like Iowa. Of course, though, with two South Carolinians in the race, uh, you know, you have a real fight over that early state, which could be interesting. But one other thing that's really interesting is a name you just left off. Out there, uh, you know, this week the biggest open secret in Texas politics has become public, which is that Ted Cruz is not running, and to not see a Texan in this race, uh, you know, Brian, since 1976 there has been a Texan in every competitive Republican presidential primary, and that really leaves open, I think, a lot of different things for people to compete for those delegates, but also you're not going to have a border state candidate. That's really interesting, Brian. What does that mean for all of these other candidates in terms of who leans into border? issues, immigration issues and the like, you know, and that could also honestly benefit Donald Trump quite a bit because he's the only one who actually has, you know, a sort of border focused record. Uh, And look, I'll be really interested to see what happens with the kind of Texas support, uh, you know, that went toward Cruz, Uh, you know, back in 2016, he effectively came in second. There's a lot of people out there who were kind of waiting to see whether he was going to jump in again. He's decided to run for Senate instead, as have a lot of other people like Tom Cotton, uh, you know, like uh, who, who also had, you know, potential. That's going to be a 
a very interesting uh, uh, competition for that Texas support. Right. Well, you know the problem with Ted Cruz. You know his dad conspired to kill Kennedy, and that was well, the, yes, <laughs> and, and that, <laughs> that does that's tend to hold you back. Yes, that would. So that's the issue. And uh, the only thing, the only thing I would I would say is that. Ron DeSantis did feel like a border state when he sent a lot of those illegal immigrants. Over yeah, to well, I think, I think that was him seizing a little bit of that border, that border yeah. juju. <laughs> uh, all right, Ben, good to have you back. Congratulations on the baby, uh, too. Thanks. Keep them coming. Yeah, I will, I'll let you know when I get more than uh, three and a half hours of sleep, Brian. You got it, absolutely. That's <laughs> right. called Monday for me. Yeah, right. exactly. Thanks, Ben. Take care. All right, so when we come back, I'll take your calls, one 866 Then we talk about journalism, the state of journalism today with, uh, with Lance Morrow. Uh, but then I do want to talk about what's in the sky, and it's a balloon. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Okay, this is the L.A. Times, very liberal Democratic paper. Shootings, theft, and other crime test cities' progressive strain. And they go into the specifics, the number of unhoused people jumped. Shootings in the city have tripled. Homicides are at a record high. Lower-level crimes like vehicles being stolen. Uh, The Democrat there in Port- on the Portland City Commission said, you don't have to watch Fox News to look around Portland and say this is not cool. This is a big Achilles heel for the Democrats, is it not? Oh, they need to get out in front of it. They need to... I want a Democrat to stand up and say, you know, some people belong in jail. You know, the rapists, the murderers... The One clap up. for that. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, but they I, do. I, I think that's very interesting. Um, that... No, wait, wait, wait. Let's just just pause there. One person is like, yes, some people belong in jail. Everybody else is, no, they don't. Nobody belongs in jail. I agree. I'm going to go out on a limb. Some people do belong in jail. And by the way, the shooter in Michigan, uh, at Michigan State University, the shooter uh, was charged with gun possession and should have been a felony. Uh, They knocked it down to a misdemeanor. Therefore, he was able to get a gun, and he kills people in cold blood until he ultimately killed himself. Uh, let's go to the phones right now. Alex in California. Hey, Alex. Oh, hi, thank you for taking my call. I just want to make two comments about Nikki Haley. First is that she was born to parents who already had college degrees in India at a time where nearly everyone there was illiterate and impoverished. So she was born into privilege, and she's unlikely to understand the ordinary people in the United States. Really? The second comment if is If both your parents go to college, you're privileged? Uh, in India, you would be because of the of the state of the economy over there. So it's different from the United States. Uh, but the second comment I want to make is that uh, she's also a, a supporter of multicultural diversity. So unlike Ron DeSantis, she believes that non-Western cultures are on par with Western culture and that there's not really uh, that degree of difference between the two. So I think. So you don't think she thinks opinion, it's an exceptional nation? Excuse me? You don't think that she believes America is an exceptional nation? No, she personally uh, does not believe that the United States is exceptional uh, in terms of our culture, of Western culture, relative to, say, uh, the various cultures of Asia, and Africa. How, and so what is that? Does that make you, th- make you think, if you believe, if you, you can believe that about her, I'll, I'll let her speak for herself. So does that make her a better candidate or a worse candidate? 
I think that makes her a much worse candidate than Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis firmly believes that Western culture is preeminent and that the values of the West are superior and that we must propagate those values. You, toward where, that's true. I think Ron DeSantis right now is definitely a stronger candidate. But the resume looks fantastic. She understands the issues. She's got international and domestic experience. And I believe that growing up in America, she is one of these people that understands we are an exceptional nation. India is still an emerging country. It's the largest democracy. But, man, uh, their policy when it comes to Russia and China, not good. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think we all know if it bleeds, it leads. The more they can get you to stay inside and watch their panic porn, the higher the ratings. Researchers at Dartmouth built a database recently monitoring the COVID coverage of the major news outlets across the world and found that while other countries mix the good news in with the bad, the U.S. national media reported almost 90% bad news. Even as things were getting better, the reporting remained negative. And politicians, they lie because it's their nature to cover their ass they don't get blamed if things goes badly and also to keep in practice but when all of our sources for medical information have an agenda to spin us yeah you wind up with a badly misinformed population including on the left that is uh bill moore again to me right on the money uh and that i didn't really think that and over up until the last 18 months or so lance morrow joins us now journalist and author of several books his latest the noise of typewriters remembering journalism lance did journalism drop the ball during the pandemic uh well yeah i think that well a lot of people dropped the ball i think it was a uh uh, it was a failure on on many fronts, but certainly uh, uh, certainly journalism tended to uh, follow bad leads from the. It's a, it's a larger problem uh, in journalism of uh, who who are the authorities? Who do you do, who who can tell you the truth about a big story like that? And how how does journalism dig into it and think for itself? A lot of it is just. Uh, uh, kind of following the lead of Dr. Fauci or whoever. And uh, so, yeah, there was a tremendous amount of confusion and disinformation. Not all of it perfidious, or I mean, some of it was understandable. But, uh, but you're right. It was a, it was a very uh, confused and tumultuous kind of journalism. Journalism's very imperfect stuff, um, and as, as we know, the, the first rough draft uh, is often very rough indeed. So you have this book out, The Noise of Typewriters, Remembering Journalism. When was the journalism, when was journalism's heyday? Uh, the, I don't idealize the 20th century journalism and all of that. A lot of it was just uh, uh, following the, the uh, uh you know the authorities and, and so on, but nevertheless, there was a different it was a different world, and it was a different journalism, and uh, there was a different standard in the sense that a journalism a journalist believed, and by the way, we never called ourselves journalists. We thought that was a pompous term. We called ourselves either reporters or newspaper men or newspaper women, but uh, the. The assumption was that there was something such a thing as objective truth 
for example, and that it could be found out and that you you dug at it and found it out. Uh, and there was not this very unstable, strange world that we're in now, which is the world of the screens and the uh, keyboard and the computer and the mouse and social media and everybody with a smartphone and everybody with a uh, Facebook or Twitter account uh, and uh, a very unstable idea of what the world is and what the facts are. So the, the assumption was uh, back in the period that I'm uh, writing about was that uh, that you could discover the truth in in the same way that you could solve a, the cops could solve a crime? You know, there was a gun of a certain caliber, and the victim was white or black or whatever, and uh, the murderer was described as wearing a green jacket and being five feet nine, and so on. In facts of of the uh, of that kind. I mean, the, the uh, Woodward and Bernstein when they were uh, running down the uh, yeah. Watergate thing. Well, they were they acted like cops, you know, instead of political reporters, and and it was as cops that they chased that particular story. So, and of course, uh, I think they're celebrating some type of anniversary. I think they're both in their eighties now, or or close there. Uh, Lance Moore, our guest. The the name of the book is "The Noise of Typewriters: Remembering Journalism." So, so Lance, another thing was brought up to me, and that journalism. Uh, journalists, for the most part, was more of a blue-collar profession. You weren't really rich or famous. You were just doing the work. Correct? Yeah, Has that changed? A, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of that. Uh, there was a, yeah, there was a change actually. When I was a young man, it tended to be a little more to become a little more gentrified. Just as I was coming in in the '60s, gentrified in the sense that uh, reporters now or then rather would started to become college graduates and especially Ivy League graduates at the uh, other papers before it was much more blue collar although you 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 don't forget that uh, columnists columnists like Walter Lippmann and Joe Joe Alsop and Stuart Alsop were very much uh, blue blood types right. you know? there's there's always uh, there's always uh, different classes of journalists. There were the saloon journalists like uh, Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill, who were who would you know uh, get their cast of characters from the uh, police precincts, and they'd walk up and down the tenement uh, stairs, and they covered uh, working people. Uh, but then there were there were the the uh, rather lofty. Uh, People like the Alsops or the, the big picture characters like Dorothy Thompson and so on. So it was it was a variety. It was a variety, but it was it was a different world and a different journalism, very different from what we have now. So who is who's the who in your mind personifies the perfect journalist or the near perfect journalist with the that the produced the the results? I know you you cite Ernest Hemingway and what he wrote and how he wrote, even when he was writing fiction. But who do you who do you lean on? Who do you lean on? Well, I, I certainly I certainly wouldn't uh, propose Hemingway as a perfect journalist, but he, he was a great writer in his in his way. Although he wrote a, a lot of stuff that was uh, really pretty terrible, uh, especially as he got drunker and drunker toward the end of his life, and is more injured in his head. But uh, the, I, in my book, I talk about John Hersey's. Uh, 
uh, Hiroshima book, which was many thought was the best journalism of the 20th century. And I talk about that and kind of argue with that premise. And then Walter Durante, the guy who worked for the New York Times, had got a Pulitzer for his uh, horrible failure to report on the Ukrainian famine in 1932. Uh, and I, I, I talk about that as the worst. But for uh, do you mean today or, or just... Uh, well, in the past and then all, today, who do you look up to? Oh, not look up to, but who do you single out? Well, I, I talk about, uh, for example, there's still plenty of really terrific journalists around. I mean, Dexter Filkins, uh, formerly of the New York Times, is a terrific war reporter. I think he's he's very, very good. Uh, there's, there's still some very good war reporting and very brave journalists. Uh, uh, reporting from from Ben Hall, for example, of the Fox News, who was so badly badly wounded, injured uh, yep. earlier in, in the in the war, and uh, you know, the terrific stuff from brave, good journalists. Um, I think I'm, you've 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 got me a little. I hadn't thought in those terms of who were the outstanding well, uh, today my my book focuses mainly on, on the, the past. Tw- 20th century yeah. uh there are a lot today but there's a lot of people are really bad and there's and, and today and and in the sense of uh, much too partisan and a little bit witless and shallow and is <laughs> it that what's wrong today in my view is a tremendous failure of leadership uh, editorial leadership at places like the New York Times. I mean, the the failures in the, it was said that the casualty, the great casualty of the 1960s was authority. Well, now, you know, like the authority of the parents and the president and the military and so on. Well, now in the old age of the baby boomers, you see that playing out in the failure of, edit, of, of the authority of editorial leaders in places like the New York Times. I mean, the failure, uh, the uh, evident in the fi- the firing of James Bennett, who, who ran the New York Times editorial page, or the, the failure implicit in uh, the firing of Donald McNeil, uh, one of the top reporters at the Times, for a perfectly ridiculous and non-existent uh, offense involving the forbidden N-word. Uh, it wasn't an offense at all. It didn't, you know, it was completely, it was a very immature act on the part of the leadership of the paper. And I think throughout journalism, you see that sort of immaturity and, and frankly, venality, that uh, a deference to uh, just ma- making the bucks and, and uh, also pandering to uh, the party line, the, the the basic party line of, of uh, wokeness or whatever whatever uh, the party line is. Uh, I, I think that the standard of a more disinterested journalism, uh, where you felt an obligation to give both sides of the story, or and, and that's now derided as some kind of prejudice or white supremacy or God knows what, but uh, to try to understand both sides of the story, that that was the point. You know, you had, you had to comprehend uh, 
you didn't just give your party line. And right. Just as as it would be ridiculous for me to say, well, Brian, I must tell you my truth. And well, okay, but but it's it's my version of the truth. But it the fact that it is mine does not make it the truth. And uh, so these are all uh, problems in in in. 21st century journalism. Uh, in the 20th century journalism, if I used the first person pronoun, I'd better have a very good reason. If I used adjectives, uh, colorful adjectives, I'd better have a very, very good reason. And in the 21st century, boy, go ahead, do it, you know. And and uh, often, and that's okay if you happen to be a genius. But if you don't happen to be a genius, then then um, you better watch yourself. And unfortunately, a lot of really third-rate people are doing those things, slinging their opinions around, and uh, the result is lousy journalism. The, the the result is is a a debasement of of the journalism of, uh, that we get in the 21st century. I where it goes from here, I don't know. I. I I hope that it sorts itself out and and there's some reassertion of maturity and leadership, uh, editorial leadership. But it's it's a mess now. It's a terrible mess. Lance Morrow, it's all in your book to to find out how we go forward. It's always good to look back. The noise of typewriters remembering journalism. Lance, thanks so much for joining us. Delighted. Thanks a lot, Brian. All right. uh, Go get them. Um, listen, when we come back, I'll open up the phones, one 408 Also, got to keep in mind what found this toxic situation. Hours now counting down to there's a huge town hall over in Ohio. Got to get to the bottom of that. And it would be nice to find out what we shot out of the sky three times over the last 10 days. Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, the Brian Kilmeade Show. By the way, if you want to get the podcast, I know a lot of you do. You can't listen live. Uh, your schedule changes. You're, you're traveling. BrianKilmeadeShow.com. You download the podcast, and you have it at uh, your beck and call. But I'm so glad you're listening live now. Let's go out to Dean in New Jersey. Uh, listen on WABC. Hey, Dean. Yeah. Hi, Brian. Um, you know, I'm listening to all these journalism now and, and these journalists and they're telling us wh- what's wrong and how they should have been corrected and why it hasn't happened. And we used to dig deep into the news and everything else. Where were they back two, three years ago? Why? Why were they doing it if they know what they were supposed to be doing? It's it, it, Bill Maher included. You know, I mean, like, yeah, I believe everything you're telling me now. But where were you? Uh, right. Uh you know, there's just such a lack of logic now that makes Bill Maher sound uh, sound less partisan because he's like, I'd love to be a Democrat, but I don't know what I don't know what AOC is talking about. Uh, you're a fascist now. I mean, calling people fascist. Uh, what, what's going on that what, what we're seeing? I would say a couple of things. You want to get to the bottom of things, but also the whole Twitter files, the fact that it's being buried backs up. The whole premise of people not trusting anything. The Twitter files reveals that the FBI working with Twitter would put out a story or squelch a story. A story would go out. 
they would explain to the they would put it on Twitter. Every outlet would take that story unverified, use Twitter as a reference or whatever's come from Twitter. The FBI behind it, taking stories out, putting stories in. It would be amplified in every other network. And next thing you know, people take it as fact and they're running with features on something that never happened. And instead of people saying, wow, we got to learn from this, people are choosing not to report what's on the Twitter files. People come out and they say, oh, that's a big nothing burger. Are you paying attention, Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, what they've been able to discover, Dave Rubin? So that, to me, is relatively discouraging. They were able to find out that these synthetic stories were amplified, maybe affecting an election, and no one's done anything to change it, and no one's acknowledging that it happened. Steve, listen on WABC. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Brian, how you doing today? Good, what's your uh, mind? Good job on the Super Bowl, by the way. Did a fantastic, Thank fantastic you. work. Um, um, I want to uh, talk about the situation over in Ohio with the uh, controlled uh, release and explosion of the uh, yeah. uh, tanker cars on the railroad. You know, the reason that they're really not digging into it or making a big uh, hullabaloo about it is who owns the railroads? Who owns the tracks? Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, big supporter of Biden. And that that whole group of uh, people that are involved in, in the administration. So they're not going to, uh, you know, rock the cradle uh, or, or turn away the spoon that feeds them. And I'll give you a scenario. And I'll build on that. If that area was a Democratic area or fooled with a minority section of the city, they would say another example of them not caring about minorities in America, willing to poison them and then tell them to go stay in their homes and stop complaining when you dr- and just drink your water. But instead, you have a place that was 70% Republican into a rural section of Ohio, which is Republican, and then you have uh, working-class Americans without a lot of political power, so it's easy to skip over and not even bring it up. But I would say this. I was telling this to... I think Allison yesterday, it's the first time in maybe seven years, eight years that CNN and Fox News is reporting the two stories, the balloon story and the chemical spill story with the derailment the same way at the same time. Everybody is legitimately outraged of the lack of information on the balloon shutdown. And everyone's legitimately outraged about the toxic gases and the lack of information in a small town. But it would have been a lot of grandstanding and America, the racist nation, still exists with two standards had it been a minority neighborhood. It's almost a relief that it's not, although I feel bad for the people of uh, Palestine. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. BrianKilmeade.com. Order any of my books. I sign and send. Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Here we go, everybody. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Tudor Dixon at the bottom of the hour. One of the things we'll talk about is getting to the bottom of the Michigan State University shooting. Of course, uh, President Biden irresponsibly just goes, well, guns, assault weapons, it might be on pipe. Assault weapons. The guy had a handgun. It's absolutely insane. And the problem with the Michigan State University, besides being a madman, the guy should have been put in jail for his actions prior. But if, what he was done, what he'd done before was knocked down to a misdemeanor. Therefore, he could buy a gun and therefore he killed innocent people. Uh, Josh Rogan is waiting, standing by, too. 
Uh, he's author of Chaos Under Heaven, uh, she, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. And he's also a Washington Post columnist. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Jim was trying to negotiate a $140 million settlement between this U.S. company and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He boasts about how he only got the job doing this negotiation because he was the then vice president's brother. Yes, trading on the Biden name. How unique. James Biden, ally Hunter, is trading on his family name with his brother as vice president, made millions. We have the documents. Now we'll see if Republicans make the case. Number two. Uh, Governor, if you were to live in the area, would you feel comfortable moving back into your home? Look, look, I, I think that I would be drinking the bottled water um, and I would be continuing to... Uh, find out what the tests were showing as far as the air. Yeah, tell the truth and show some caution. That's my message to local and national politicians. You just heard the governor of Ohio speaking. It's so-called experts when it comes to the toxic chemical spill in Palestine, Ohio. The train derailment followed by controlled explosion has led to a massive evacuation and a whole bunch of questions. Number one. We learned nothing in these briefings that I didn't already know as a member of the Intelligence or Armed Services Committee. That's why I think it's so important that Joe Biden personally and directly address the American people. That would be nice. Fighting it out. China gets combative with the Biden administration on the balloon they thrust on us, like the pandemic, and make laughable allegations. Well, no one knows its origin or if the other objects were shot out of the sky erroneously or were they just balloons, literally balloons. Top secret briefings only add to the anger and confusion. A man who's never confused joins us now, always intrigued. Josh Rogan, author of Chaos Under Heaven. Josh, welcome back. Great to be with you, Brian. You're going to Munich, right? Uh, yeah, taking off tomorrow. Vice President Harris, Secretary Blinken, uh, lots of prime ministers will be assembled to decide whether or not we're going to stick with this whole Ukraine thing and beat Russia once or for all, or if we're going to pull the plug and uh, suffer a loss for freedom and democracy. I hope it's the former, but I'll let you know when I get there. Are you not sure? Because I'm pretty sure they're dug in on it. They just have been reluctant to give them the weapons they need to be successful. Well, that's right. They, they're, they're, we're arming Ukraine just enough to tie, which if you think about it is the craziest strategy of all because we're giving them – we won't give them weapons they need to go on the offensive, but we'll give them weapons to defend themselves. So it creates a stalemate, which makes, means the war will last forever, which is in Russia's favor because they have more – prisoners and bodies that to throw at the problem so the time is on their side so yeah no i'm sure that the, the you know the assembled european intelligentsia and chattering class won't pull all the aid but the question is will they give them the things they need to actually win and that includes tanks and fighter jets and the rest and i don't think the germans are there because they look at the biden administration and they say we're not going to be holier than the pope on this thing and if biden won't do it we won't do it so it really is a situation where america has to lead and europe uh, only then would, would follow you know people should remember that the president of the united states said ah let them have Nord Stream too it's almost done anyway and even though it's so detrimental to now we know european security uh trump was right on that yeah, it's so crazy. For the whole year, the Biden administration has this pattern where they're like, oh, they don't need the longer range missiles. And then, the, oh, OK, I guess we'll give them the longer range missiles. Oh, they don't need the the Patriot system. OK, we'll give them the Patriots. Oh, they don't need the tanks. OK, we'll give them the tanks. So they're constantly changing their minds when they realize that they do need all of this stuff. And they have this idea, oh, well, nobody wants World War Three. But the question is whether or not 
you know, prolonging the war makes it more dangerous or less dangerous. I say getting the war over quicker by beating Russia quicker actually is the safest way to get out of this without uh, escalating into World War III. And if we're just going to, uh, you know, keep, uh, you know, making up rules of deterrence and rules of we, we can give them this thing, but we can't give them that thing, uh, that plays into Putin's hands. And I think that actually uh, benefits the aggressor, which makes this situation more dangerous, if, you, if, you're, if, if you're being honest. Josh, the other thing is, even when we green light something, it takes forever to get there. Uh, and then they got to train on them, from the Patriot missiles on down to the high Mars that are now there, to attack them that we won't give them because we don't trust them not to, to bomb Moscow, I guess. So, which is crazy, because if we don't trust the Ukrainians now, we should just cut bait and let them be run over. But, you know, the, the move by Russia is not a theory of Josh Rogan or Brian Kilmeade. They're already moving on Moldova. They're already trying to infiltrate that country. How soon till they go after the Baltics and finish off Georgia? This is part of their master plan they tell people about. Well, that's right, because, you know, Putin, like every single other totalitarian, aggressive, militaristic dictator, whoever lived, uh, will advance until he's stopped. And this is sort of the the problem with the—I get it, a lot of people in Washington are— and around the country, like, hey, this is a lot of money, and you know, it, it is a lot of money. It's all, and oh well, you know, how long is this going to go? Well, it could go a long time, but you have to weigh that against the alternative, which is that if Ukraine falls, Putin won't stop there, and then we will be in a war with NATO, and then it will be World War Three. So this is the chance. This is an insurance policy. This is a down payment. This is a lot cheaper than not doing it. So you know, I get that a lot of people want more oversight of the money. I'm for that. Absolutely, let's get some more oversight. But at this point, we should be able to say clearly that we trust the Ukrainians enough to give them the weapons they need to actually win the war. And by the way, that's a, you know, that's not a bad deal for us. We give them the weapons, they do the fighting. Uh, that's actually, they're doing the hard part. We're doing the easy part, okay? It's the least we can do, and we should do it. Well, why do you have to explain it? Why aren't there people in the administration regularly explaining the big objective? Because the average person says, you know, with $32 trillion in debt, we have an open southern border. Why are we not putting resources there? And the answer should be complete and comprehensive, and everyone should choose whether they want to go with that theory or not. But let's get the other side. Ever since he said, you know, we're going to back and we're going to support the Ukrainians, it's allowed other people to fill in the gaps of why we're wasting our time because maybe they're not the perfect democracy. But well, they, are, right. they are great fighters, but they need to, they need to explain the objective. Right. Well, I, I think you're right, Brian. I think the administration has done a terrible job communicating to the American people about why this is so important. And the, I think for the first year, that was because they had a Democratic Congress, so there was no oversight. So they didn't feel any pressure. They knew they were going to get the money one way or the other. And now that we have a Republican-led House of Representatives, all of a sudden, a lot of people in the administration are like, oh, man, I guess we got to answer some tough questions about this thing. And, you know, or, or maybe we'll just call the Republicans weak and, and, and try to ignore them. And I don't think they should do that. I think we need to engage those people with whom we disagree with on both the right and the left and engage the American people because we are asking the American people for a sacrifice. But again, it's a it's a short term hit for a long term gain because, you know, history should have taught us. And this is what the administration should emphasize, that appeasing aggressors doesn't work. It ends up costing you more in the end in both blood and treasure. And by the way, this is what the weapons are for, is to defend freedom against tyranny and aggression. And, uh, you know, it, the, the front line of that battle is in Ukraine, but it won't stay there uh, in, unless we actually increase our support for them and quick. Uh, w- how how soon do you think the Russian offensive starts? 
it's a, it's started. It's begun. I mean, we, we see the missile volleys. There's Wagner, thousands of Wagner troops recruited from God knows which prison, you know, being thrown at the lines like cannon fodder. This is how the Russians wage war. They advance inch by inch and destroy everything in their path. OK, that's the other thing. That's the other part of this that people have to keep in their minds is that, you know, it's not as if this uh, stalemate is just, you know, a benign. Every moment that Russia controls 20 percent of Ukraine, the people in that 20 percent of Ukraine are living in hell. And if they survive at all, they're getting uh, raped or beaten or sent to some part of Siberia, separated from their kids, tortured. Kids are being tortured. I mean, we should have some sort of common humanity that allows us to understand that these atrocities are something that we have to stand against. Otherwise, again, we will see them multiply. Okay. And, you know, that's not just uh, because we're, we're, we're so altruistic is because this system of norms where we don't permit uh, dictators like Putin to commit mass atrocities and get away with it is really important. And again, we learned that lesson once in the 20th century. Now we got to learn it again in the 21st century, hopefully for the last time. So let's talk about China. Once again, we have a mystery. What is behind the balloon program, the near space program? How extensive is it and why would the Chinese invest in it? Right. So it's, it's so fun. we talked about this on, on the show earlier today. But the part we didn't get to is the is the why. Right. Why are they doing all of this? Well, I talked to some friends in Taiwan this week and they were like, oh, yeah, balloons. We get those balloons. We have those a lot. And it, it, it sort of dawned on me that. Oh, yeah, this is why. This is because they're preparing for something. They're preparing for the capability to launch an aggressive war, similar to what we see in Russia. But they don't want to make the same, same mistake as the Russians. And so what they're doing is they're developing new ways to sustain that fighting force. So if the Chinese are going to invade Taiwan, yeah, they have satellites that can get intelligence and do communications. Yeah, they've got hacking. They've got lots of different things. But this is one more thing that they have that, against us. And if they just showed us, we don't really have anything good to to combat it. We don't really have, what are we going to do? Send a, a F-22 with sidewinders at every, you know, they could send a hundred balloons in the sky and overmatch us. So it's, you know, a lot of people again in Washington, oh, well, why are we getting so excited about balloons? This is World War One technology. That's not the point. The point is that the Chinese are weaponizing a new part of space, near space, and they're doing it for a reason to make their army and their military more agile, more uh, resilient, uh, just in case Xi Jinping decides to attack. And that's a real possibility. So we just can't ignore it. So they came back and they said this, uh, this Wang uh, Wenbin, who's a spokesperson for the military. It says uh, since last year or more specifically since May, the U.S. has released multiple high altitude balloons from its territory, which have continuously circled the globe and flown into the airspace of China and several dozen other uh, countries over 10 times illegally, at least without the approval of relevant Chinese authorities. That is not true. Uh, And here is John Kirby. Cut to. I assume the United States does spy on China. Do we send balloons? We do not deploy surveillance balloons over China. And do we spy over China? We do not deploy surveillance balloons over China, George. So uh, that is the pushback. They claim we didn't push back hard enough. Right. I am rubber, your glue. Anything you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. That's what the Chinese are throwing, propaganda machines are throwing out today, which is, okay, well, listen, we, we your balloon was on TV. If we've got the balloons, show us the evidence. I'm not here to say that, you know, American government can't do anything wrong. I, I'm sure we're spying on China. I hope we're spying on China. That's why we have the $80 billion intelligence agency. Somebody should be spying on China. But, you know, if you're going to accuse us of something, let's see the evidence, because let's face it, the Chinese Communist Party has a 
uniquely, tragically horrible track record when it comes to telling the truth. And besides, it doesn't really matter because uh, in this instance, this is they were caught red-handed, and uh, they, first they denied it. They said it was a weather balloon. Then they said, oh, well, everybody does it. And now they're saying, oh, well, how dare you get angry about it? Uh, you know, to create news cycles so that, oh, oh, now all the American journalists have to report that China said we didn't do it. Uh, but their side of the story is suspect, to say the very least. And uh, our response has to take into account the fact that uh, there's a, just a ton of evidence that they're expanding these programs. And uh, by the way, it's not just us. There's a lot of other countries, too. And uh, if we were smart, if we were organized, which we're not, uh, we would get together with all these other countries and say, hey, listen, this is something that cannot stand. And I'm sure there are a lot of other countries in Europe and South America and Africa who don't like being spied on by Chinese balloons either. And, uh, you know, we should probably get in touch with them because it's really not a U.S. versus China Cold War. It's China's rise that's affecting lots of other countries in all sorts of horrible ways. And the nuclear program, we have no agreement for, to break like the Russians keep violating. We have no nuclear agreement. So there is no threshold or ceiling on China's nuclear program, and evidently they have more ICBMs than us, fixed and mobile. So that's pretty significant, don't you think? Well, yeah. I was in Tokyo, as you know, Brian, uh, last month, and I interviewed the prime minister of Japan, and he said that they're going to double the Japanese defense budget over the next five years. This was before the balloons, right? He didn't know anything about balloons. So it's not as if the balloons are the thing that we have to be worried about solely. Uh, it's just the latest thing added to the pile of things, including the fact that they're building hundreds of ICBM so silos and missiles. Why are they doing that? Again, it's a really good question and I think a pretty clear answer is so that if and when they decide to attack Taiwan, that they can rattle a nuclear saber just like Putin is to keep us at, at bay so that we end up at some conference saying, well, I don't know if we should give the Taiwan a, Taiwanese this gun or that gun or we should escalate with this sanction or that sanction. They're building the resilience and the machine to be – able to take Taiwan without us being able to stop them. And that's uh, scary, okay, and that's complicated. And that's not doesn't mean we should overreact and throw the kitchen sink at the balloons. It means that we have to take our valuable resources and uh, keep in mind that it's not just about the war in Ukraine now. It's about the possible war in Asia tomorrow. That's what the Prime Minister of Japan told me. He said, Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about China attacking Taiwan. That's what the region is worried about. That's what we ought to be worried about. Balloons are a piece of that. Nuclear weapons are a piece of that. Information warfare is a piece of that. The South China Sea Islands are a piece of that. The economic warfare is a piece of that. It's all one problem. And right now we're playing whack-a-mole with these little things by shooting down this balloon. Or Now we're shooting down things we don't even know what they are. <laughs> they got lost in the mountains. Uh, we we might have shot down something for nothing. We'll never know. Sorry, we can't find it. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's insane that we have uh, you know, a, the, uh, a policy where we can't even explain what, why we shoot down things that we shoot down and when we shoot them down. Hey, can't someone over there get on message and explain to the world and to the American people, here, here, let me do it. I'll, I'll do it for you right now. Shoot down the Chinese spy balloons. Don't shoot down the things that aren't a threat, okay? Should be a simple <laughs> policy. That's just my suggestion. If anyone in the Biden administration is listening, Chinese spy balloons, yes, shoot those down. The things that are benign, don't shoot those down. But we seem to have the opposite of that, which is crazy. Hey, Josh, have a, uh, have a great trip to, to Munich. Stay safe. And I look forward to talking to you when you get back. Thank you, my friend. Uh, Josh Rogan, Washington Post. Uh, you listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, back with you, Coles, in a moment. Then Tudor Dixon at the bottom of the hour. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base. It's The Brian Kilmeade Show.
If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. All right, let me get a quick call. And Tony, you're in WABC in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Tony. Hi. You know, I know no one's been talking about the Consumer Price Index, which is the price of a, let's see, a basket of of market things, goods and services. Um, you know, is this something that they've been saying is going to continue to happen? I thought they were going to try to cap that. What do you, what's your take on so that? So here it is. They, they said the percentage of consumer price is in January compared to January of last year are down from 6.5% and a peak of 9.1% last June. The newest inflation numbers are, they say, far above the Federal Reserve's target of 2 and consumer prices increased 0.5%. That caused the right. whole market to go down because they feel as though the Fed has got to slow us down, is going to raise rates up to five now. So I don't think the prices are going down on anything. I know it. I know it. It's amazing because I did like a home construction project because it I'm was hearing mandatory. It. And so I'm putting off everything that isn't mandatory right now, hoping that maybe in the next year or so we can have more control once we get into a new uh, administration. But anyway, thanks for your take on it. I mean, people still aren't getting any any aid by what they're doing. I know, because uh, prices, uh, wages are not going up commiserate uh, with the inflation. So uh, we'll discuss it all. Brian Kilmeade Show, Tudor Dixon next. Uh, and then we'll do a more to know. And one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. the number to call to be part of it. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Okay, this is the L.A. Times, very liberal Democratic paper. Shootings, theft, and other crime test cities' progressive strain. And they go into the specifics, the number of unhoused people jumped, shootings in the city have tripled, homicides are at a record high, lower level crimes like vehicles being stolen. Uh, the Democrat there in Port- on the Portland City Commission said, you don't have to watch Fox News to look around Portland and say this is not cool. This is a big Achilles heel for the Democrats, is it not? Oh, they need to get out in front of it. They need to. I want a Democrat to stand up and say, you know, some people belong in jail. You know, the rapists, the murderers. The One clap up. for that. Yeah, I, I'm I, sorry, I, but I, they I, do. I, I think that's very interesting. Um, that, no, wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's just pause there. One person is like, yes, some people belong in jail. Everybody else is, no, they don't. Nobody belongs in jail. I agree. Dem- so I'm going to go out on a limb. Some people it, do belong pe- in jail. So that's how crazy it is that Bill Maher is the voice of logic, that some people belong in jail doesn't really have unanimous appeal, which is crazy. Tudor Dixon joins us now. Part of the reason she ran for uh, the GOP nominee for governor, she was the GOP nominee for governor. Part of the reason she wanted to get that over Governor Whitmer was to straighten out things like this. Uh, Tudor Dixon, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First off, the horrible uh, shooting in Michigan State University, that dates back to what we're talking about. This guy, Anthony McRae, this mutant, uh, this gunman opened fire in Michigan State, killing three kids, critically uh, injuring five more, wouldn't have been able to legally own a gun had he been convicted of a past felony weapons charge that was dismissed. Instead of that, he agreed to plea it down to a misdemeanor gun charge. And the felony rap was dropped as part of the deal, which means he could buy a gun and he could go ahead and assassinate people. So when are people going to wise up and see there's a link to all this? 
Absolutely. And we're devastated here in the state of Michigan. There's so many families that have been affected by this, the poor families that lost their, their children in this tragedy. And it's interesting to me because we see this as a tragedy because it's happening on a college campus. But this is actually happening a few blocks over almost daily in Lansing. It's the 17th most violent city in the entire country. And exactly what you heard on Bill Maher, why aren't Democrats stepping up? Well, instead, the Democrat prosecutor in this town has said, I'm going to forego gun charges for people because I think it's a racist issue. Now, this man could have been in a situation where should have been in a situation where he couldn't buy a weapon, but also police had been called to his house multiple times because he was doing practice or target practice out of the back door of his house within the city limits. But, you know, when you have a prosecutor who is saying, I'm not going to prosecute these people on gun charges, what are the police going to do? They let it go. And then you have this guy wander into campus a few miles away and tragedy occurs. We're, we're shocked about it. Now, I will say, I want to give kudos to our attorney general here in the state of Michigan, because she put out a tweet. And the way I interpret her tweet is, well, if I can start prosecuting pe people for gun crimes, then let's do it. But you keep sending these people to this Ingham County prosecutor who's radical, and she's letting people out. If I can see a Democrat every day say we want to abide by the laws that we have and put people in jail that deserve to be in jail or take the, the appropriate precautions with people who are convicted of gun crimes, then I think we're making progress. But I hear Democrats come out and say, add more laws. And I just laugh. I think, why are you not even following the laws we have? Not only politicians, the president, nonstop. So when you look at what happened in Michigan State – I, I don't really know any campus that just locks down like iron gates, but in fact, most of them you can drive on usually. Do you see something being addressed in that way? You know, it's, it's interesting huge. because there's there's this rock on campus and, and, last, and they paint the rock every night. And the night before last, the rock said, you know, how many more? And then last night, somebody painted the rock and said, when are you going to let us carry on campus to protect ourselves? And the media went crazy over this. Like, who painted this rock? They didn't ask the night before. But when somebody says, we want to be able to protect ourselves, exactly. we ask. And I've been saying this from the beginning. You either have a sitting duck zone or you have a, a militant-type situation where everything is locked down because you're not allowing anybody to have protection. So the other thing is, I did really dislike the press conference yesterday when politicians got up, including your governor, and ranted before we got any facts. We're there for a press conference to find out what happened, how many people died, what were the reasons, is the guy, who is the shooter? And then you have people just, uh, local congressmen, you have uh, Governor Whitmer and others just go up and rant. That, I don't, we're not your therapist. So we need okay. answers to these questions. It's such baloney, too, because... You don't have any of the de the details, but you've got somebody. We've got an open Senate seat, so that tells you a lot. We've got an open Senate seat, so you see Alyssa Slotkin out there, who would have never been out there any other time. But she's she's vying for Debbie Stabenow's Senate seat. So then she comes out and she's all sad about the fact that we've got to make sure this doesn't happen again. 
But why aren't they saying this prosecutor that Governor Whitmer appointed to this position has got to go? We're done with allowing this to happen. You know, in Michigan, we have four of the most dangerous or the most violent cities in the country, four of the top 20 most violent cities in the country. You think there's a problem there? Yeah, it's these prosecutors that just let criminals off. And this was tragic. This guy shouldn't have been roaming the streets. And there he is roaming the streets. And tragedy hits. Uh, Tudor Dixon with us, former GOP nominee for governor. So, Tudor, what's next for you? Well, I, you know, I've said before, people ask me, are you going to run for office again? And I always say, I mean, maybe it's like pregnancy and you forget and then you do it again. So there's a chance. There's a chance. <laughs> you enjoyed the process. <laughs> Why do you think you lost? You know, I think that uh, abortion was more than we could have imagined. And they hit us hard with abortion ads. And, I, you know, you know that what I was running on was safety, was schools, and was economic development, certainly not bringing China into the state like we're seeing now. But they had the advantage. I mean, that was something that we didn't see coming, that that over, being overturned in July and weren't prepared for the fact that she was going to say that this was something that I would do. And, and it was on the ballot for the people, but we just couldn't get that message out. So I think that the idea of young women thinking, gosh, this person's going to stop me from having an abortion if I want to. And then she came out and she said, if she, if she wins, she's going to use abortion for economic development. Uh. <laughs> what? I mean, and, and people don't understand what economic development is. Meanwhile, the state of Michigan is just dying. You've got Glenn Youngkin out there going, no way is Ford going to bring these Chinese corporations in here. And Gretchen Whitmer's like, yes, please come. Please come. What do you mean Ford's bringing Chinese corporations? Oh, Ford. Glenn, Ford went to Virginia with, and they said, we're going to bring a battery plant. Well, Glenn Youngkin, Governor Youngkin, he looked into it and he said, no, 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 this is a partner of yours. This is not Ford. This is a Chinese-owned corporation. Gretchen Whitmer said, bring, you, bring them here. We'll give you a billion dollars. A billion dollars, taxpayer, Michigan taxpayer dollars, will go to a company that is owned by the Chinese with ties to the Chinese Communist Party in Michigan. Which the is, second, this is the second battery plant from China that will come here. Which is going to be a boon for for uh, your unions. But in Virginia, we wouldn't have had that. It was a right-to-work state. Tudor, uh, great to hear from you. We'll keep up to date on what's happening. I look forward to you hearing about your next move. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You got it. Uh, Tudor Dixon from Michigan. one 866 We're going to go back uh, and uh, discuss this. Also, we haven't really discussed uh, James Biden, Joe Biden's brother. What he was up to will astonish you. Don't move. The fastest growing talk show in America. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're pretty confident that uh, many of these deals that were were done during the the Biden vice presidency, the payday came shortly after uh, Joe Biden left office. So uh, this is a very well-organized family that has been involved in, you know, shady business dealings with our adversaries, not just in Russia, Ukraine, and China, which we all know about, but also in the Middle East. And what I found with, with the president's brother, Jim, he operated mainly in the Middle East. There were multiple deals in the Middle East 
where Jim Biden was influence peddling. So that is James Comer. The investigation on the Biden family grows. Now on the cover of the New York Post today, James Biden was hired to help a Philadelphia construction company resolve a decades-old dispute with the Saudi government because he was a sibling of then-Vice President, according to the documents. According to these documents, Jim told a former senior U.S. Treasury official working as a private investigator that he was hired to negotiate with the Saudis because of his position and relationship to the Vice President of the United States. So it was funny that New York Post wrote uh, Brothers Reaper because he got about multi-million dollars, $140 million the Saudis were owed for a uh, desalinization plant built by Hill Subsidy over in 1980. So he gets a portion of that. Lankford and Reed claims that Hill International also hired James Biden, now 73, in 2011 to negotiate a secret deal with the Saudis to settle the dispute and get out of paying uh, Lankford the 40% cut outlined in his contract. So where did that money go? Did he share it with Joe? How did Joe end up with all these houses when he spent the last 40 years in government jobs? That is a huge problem. You would think Republicans now have to clearly make the case, not make it seem personal, but I guarantee the Democrats are going to come back and say, look at uh, Jared Kushner, you're going to be investigating that. Well, Jared Kushner did what he did. He's now a private citizen. He can do what he wants. If you found some paperwork that showed he did a deal uh, that he went once— um, Trump loses to get a deal done, that would be an issue. But up until that, I don't think so. Here's more from Comer. Well, there were probably a dozen or more countries that they were involved in. Uh, The amount of money varies. I mean, that's why we need the bank records to get the exact amount. But I can tell you with confidence, Sean, it was tens of millions of dollars. There are two things every American is going to realize at the conclusion of our investigation. And that's number one, that multiple members of the Biden family were involved in the influence peddling schemes. And number two, most of these big deals were initiated during Joe Biden's term as vice president. Now, the narrative that the that the defenders in the media are trying to portray on Hunter Biden now that the laptop is, is has been proven to be real and the, and the evidence on it is, is legitimate is that, well, these deals happen just by the president's son who, by the way, had a, an addiction problem, and it didn't matter because Joe Biden wasn't in office during this time. That's not true. He was. So the guy who broke the story for the Daily Mail is Josh Boswell. He joined uh, the Hannity TV show, Cut 25. It's the um, latest in a long line of pieces of evidence that show um, that Joe probably did know what what, um, his family members were doing, the foreign business dealings they had. So um, I've got these documents that um, one of them is is the most interesting one, I think, the affidavit from this former um, senior Treasury official. He was investigating this case. Jim was trying to negotiate a $140 million settlement between this U.S. company and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And uh, he comes and, and interviews Jim about it. And, and uh, Jim is incredibly frank with him. In fact, he boasts about how he only got the job doing this negotiation because he was the then vice president's brother. And he um, he tells him, you know, that over and over again. Is that unbelievable to you? I mean, that the uh, let's just see. James Comer, make it clear, make it concise. Where's the money? And by the way, do you pay taxes on anything? If you do pay taxes, the forensics are there to go track it down and see where the money went. Uh, Let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. All right, let's start in golf, where Tiger Woods is going to do something he hasn't done in seven months. Play golf. 
He's going to go out to the Riviera, of course, he's had a lot of success with, at the Genesis into Invitational. He is now 47 years old, coming off a horrific injury, but did play two majors last year. Here's what Tiger expects. As far as the recovery, it's more of my, my ankle, whether I can recover from day to day. The leg is better than it was last year, but it's, it's my ankle. And so being able to uh, have it recover from day to day and, and meanwhile still stress it, but have the recovery and also have the strength development at the same time. Uh, it's been an intricate little balance that we've had to dance, um, but it's gotten so much better uh, the last couple months. Uh, by the way, uh, Tiger Woods on a bad ankle, why would you play? Why don't you just wait a couple of weeks or a month and get the ankle better? But he's going to make his own decision. He's got to walk the course. That's part of the rules. Meanwhile, there's a documentary on Netflix about the live PGA rivalry. I will watch that. Next, happening today, Kansas City prepares a parade. They're rallying right now. The parade will start on 6th and go to Grand Boulevard. I imagine they will be happy. Andy Reid, the coach, not allowing the Chiefs to watch Rihanna's Super Bowl halftime show. That's official, according to the quarterback. Actually, that doesn't surprise me. Do you really want your team watching the halftime show? Listen to Patrick Mahomes. You at all watching Rihanna's uh, performance during this? I didn't, but I heard it was great. But uh, Coach Reid told us, he said, if you go out to watch the performance, just keep walking because you're not playing the rest of the year. Do you agree? I believe that Rihanna should name the baby after you. Your thoughts? Um, I, I, my name is taken by my son, Patrick LeVon Mahomes III, so I don't know if that name is still allowed. So she has, she has to think of another one. All right, next. Michael Jordan's birthday is on Friday, but instead of throwing a big bash ahead of turning 60, the basketball legend is donating $10 million to Make-A-Wish. Uh, the Hall of Famer announced this, saying he's been honored to work with the organization since 89, helping put a smile on kids' faces through hundreds of grants and wishes. Witness, uh, witnessing their strength and resilience during a tough time in their lives has truly been an inspiration. Make-A-Wish says Jordan has granted hundreds of wishes for kids since 1989 and has consistently been one of the most requested celebrities. No joke. That's cool. Yeah, right? I mean, does he really need a party? Well, I mean... We don't really know that he's not throwing one. We just oh, he know could that he also. I mean, he could maybe. You don't have not, to make a choice. You the, could give to make a wish and have a party. He, he could, exactly. But I think it's super classy and, you know, just goes with the man who he is, right? True. South Dakota has become the second state to ban gender affirming care for transgender youth, and Republican Governor Christy Nome signed the controversial bill into law. Uh, the law bars healthcare workers from prescribing puberty blockers, it does not limit pre- or, or prevent. Provisions of services to minors born or diagnosed with medically verifiable disorder of sex development. So uh, I guess getting ahead of it, do you think I, I kind of forgot about her sometimes? She might even be getting herself set to run. Yeah, right, or someone's number two pick. But, I mean, she's the governor in a very red state. I mean, it's a good decision. Why are we talking so much about transgender? I mean, because it's an issue, though. I mean, it's, no. it's but why? disturbing. Why is it an issue? Who well, keeps bringing it up? I mean, it's out there, social media, other news outlets, and how you need to let kids be kids, and it's sort of a little crazy. Next, iPhone and Mac uh, users are being urged to update your de- uh, your devices to new software. Apple has released a whole new range of updates, fixing bugs and issues uh, almost on all of its products. The company will roll out software updates for the iPhone, iPad, Mac, Apple TV, Watch, and even HomePods. The updates include uh, different features across all those platforms, but all of them are focused on bug updates. Are you somebody that doesn't like the upgrades? My upgrade on my on my iPad has been a joke. I'm having trouble sending stuff. It sends itself now in an attachment. I don't want to send things in an attachment unless I want to choose to put it in the attachment. 
Yeah, you definitely sent things differently for a while. It, it seemed to get back to normal, but I agree. I always like defer for as long as possible because there's always some weird glitch that makes things much more complicated. Nikki Haley making it official. She's running for president. He'll, she'll probably get slammed by uh, President Trump pretty soon. He's been kind to her, though, mm, compared to others. Uh, this is Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. BrianKilmeade.com. Order any of my books. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.